You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, what's up? How's it going? I'm doing well. I'm in a new place, but this is an undisclosed location. I'm not going to tell anyone. You, you move more than anyone I know. You do two I've, things more than anyone I know. Attend weddings, although during yes. COVID you've, you know, slowed down with that. Um, and also move around. I'm an excellent wedding guest. I don't blame all my the people who invite me to weddings all the time. I'm an excellent wedding guest. I'm very generous. Uh, I, 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 I dance a lot. You know, it's you know I'm a big hype man. Always, yeah. Life of the party. Is so yeah, I miss. It's one of the things I miss the most about COVID. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm moving around. Uh, my life is pretty hectic right now, but I, I hope to be settling down very very soon. Awesome. Well, um, we have a huge show ahead for us. Um, you know, it's Saturday, so we wanted to keep things light. Um, in the interview section, we'll talk about the ethnic cleansing of Armenians. Um, obviously, I'm being sarcastic Fun. about the lightness of the show. Uh, but Daniel <laughs> Bessner, who's honestly one of the smartest people I've ever had a conversation with, uh, will be joining us to talk about uh, what's happening in the conflict in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, and we'll also talk a little bit more about uh, Turkey's role and how its foreign policy has, I, I wouldn't say evolved, uh, but how it's changed mm. and what it means uh, for that region. We have great uh, decode segments that could be the yeah, name new, of our new account. brand. New brand, decode. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I love it. I like We're just it. testing it out. It's nice. It's yeah. good. It's something that hasn't been taken by someone else simple. yet. <laughs> so yeah, simple. simple. It's available. You know, we mm-hmm. we registered it with the trademark office. You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, um, we have uh, a great decode segments, and then later our salt segment, of course, we'll touch on some of the ridiculous things being said by liberals in mainstream media, particularly when it has to do with um, some pretty astonishing developments about Donald Trump's contraction of COVID-19. Who would have thought he would ever test positive for this virus? I mean... <laughs> He never wears masks. He's constantly, you know, in tight quarters with a lot of other people who don't wear masks. So it didn't surprise me. But there is a pretty crazy update to that story as well. Um, But before we get to all of that, let's start with our banter, uh, because I came across something on Twitter yesterday, (laughs) and I want to get your thoughts, Nando. Yeah. So Hmm. Twitter is the place people go to make death threats. That's what Twitter is known for. That is what it is known for. You get it all the time. All the time, all day, every day since its inception. Um, It's 86% of what you see on Twitter. However, following news that Donald Trump tested positive for COVID-19 and, of course, the subsequent happy tweets that followed that news, Twitter released this statement. Tweets that wish or hope for death, serious bodily harm or fatal disease against anyone are not allowed and will need to be removed. This does not automatically mean suspension. And uh, that was a quote tweet by uh, a quote tweet that included Jason uh, Kobler's tweet that said, Twitter says it will suspend people who tweet that they hope Trump dies. Facebook will let you wish death upon Trump as long as you don't tag him. (laughs) I I mean, Facebook allows everything. So, yeah. Not just that, but I just love the little, uh, I just love the, uh, well, of course, I mean, mean, if you tag him, though, like, then poor guy he might see it and he might think you know poor trump he might like get a little notification on his little facebook thing in the top right corner and be like oh my god these people these people they want me dead they want me dead maybe if maybe if we don't tag him he'll never see it 
<laughs> I mean, it, it's it's, it really is amazing. It, 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 yes. And it, look, would I prefer that people don't issue death threats or wishes of death upon other people? Sure, yeah. But, I mean, the fact that Twitter came out with this statement now is laughable, considering people have been critical of Twitter's lack of action when it comes to targeted harassment and all sorts of stuff that people deal with. I've been dealing with it forever, right? Um, and I don't know what the answer is because I don't want like the platform to be overly censored. And I do see that they don't really apply their policies evenly, right? Yeah. Um, so that's an issue. And uh, Daniel Kibblesmith uh, tweeted in response to Twitter's statement, Uh, A quote tweet that had this Washington Post article analysis. Trump retweets a video saying the only good Democrat (laughs) is a dead Democrat. (laughs) And Daniel Kibblesmith is like, well, what happens now? I mean, again, again, like so many, like so many things in our politics and we're going to get, you're going to get into it in your, in your decode segment. We're probably going to get into it in the salt segment. The, the kind of um, imbalance that exists in which, you know, the right, can weaponize, can do all all of the insane shit that it does. It could, you know, like the president of the United States retweeting something like the, the only good Democrat is a de- Democrat. Um, but then as soon as like the lightest, the lightest uh, insult comes their way from even like the most loser liberal, they go apoplectic and lose their minds completely. Um, and the and the sort of guardians of our institutions always grant them that in good faith. I know. Like they always think that they're they're doing the, they're doing this in good faith, and it's like, no, they're not. Like, assume always assume bad faith, especially online, especially from the right. You know, like it, it's the fact that anyone takes it seriously is just is an absolute joke. You know, but they they get like extremely offended while then you know saying things like uh, uh, I don't know. Like Hillary Clinton is a literal demon who came out from the ground and has horns and uh, will smells like sulfur, you know. Um, yeah, and that's okay. It's crazy. Yeah, and 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 Donald Trump himself. I mean, when it comes to let's let's compare apples to apples, oranges to oranges. During the Ebola outbreak, which by the way, um, luckily the United States uh, didn't have like a widespread Ebola outbreak, uh, but right. there were worries that it could it could spread here. And to be quite honest with you, for all the criticism that I have for the Obama administration, they did a pretty good job in ensuring that there wasn't an, a, an Ebola outbreak here in the United States. With that yeah. said, at the time in 2014, Donald Trump tweeted this. President Obama has a personal responsibility to visit and embrace all people in the U.S. who contract (laughs) Ebola. Yeah, so you're right. The bad faith point is devastating and absolutely correct. And I think part of the problem is that liberals want to, like, you know, fly this flag of civility. I mean, Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton campaigned on it. When When they go low, we go high. No, how about we don't go high? How about we get a little more, I don't know, Machiavellian in our response to things and do exactly what Republicans do, would do if the shoe were on the other foot? I mean, I'm going to talk about this in greater detail during my segment. Um, but my point here is this is an opportunity to point to how much of an absolute failure Donald Trump has been in not only governing the country, but keeping his own White House safe. Oh, we're not allowed. Oh, is is that offensive? Are we offending the right wing? Oh my god. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah. I, I was about to like go off on a uh, you know, foul rant there. But you get what I'm saying? Okay. Like I Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I'm not buying it. Sorry. Yeah, and, and again it's it's not that I mean there's like there's a certain subset of liberals who say that you need to use the exact same tactics and it's not necessarily the it's not necessarily like that kind of um, that simple. Like there was a, you know, I remember like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a David Brock who wanted to create the Breitbart of the left or whatever, you know, like, and, and that's not, it's not, ex- you don't have to do the exact same thing you, they do just in the inverse. You just, you have to understand their motivations and you, you cannot grant them good faith and then respond accordingly. Right. Like mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you don't have to do the exact same thing, you can do something different, but, but, but never granting them the premise of the whole thing because they don't they don't care there isn't again we talk about this a lot like liberals are obsessed with the magical reasonableness referee that exists in the sky who is like adjudicating reasonable points uh to either side and that person doesn't exist there is no reasonable referee in the sky you know so don't try to play to that guy no one cares like voters don't care there, that person doesn't exist. You will never get rewarded. You'll never get the brownie points. So just accept that and then act accordingly. It doesn't mean you have to, like, debase yourself, like, to the level that uh, some, like, insane right-winger would. But there's other things that you can do. It's not the – it's not an either-or uh, proposition. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it really is about framing. So – I do think that if Obama contracted a lethal virus, uh, the right would celebrate it. Uh, they would hope for his 100%. death. I, and I'm not saying that, you know, the left or liberals need to be doing that. But what I am arguing is this is the perfect opportunity to make a well-constructed point about how Donald Trump is not only a threat to the country, he's a threat to himself. He's a threat to his <laughs> own administration. That is a good point to make. And anyone who gets offended by that can kick rocks. Yeah. I don't really care. Yeah. yeah. And also someone who just doesn't realize that it's all kind of funny. You know, and and you can you can't even laugh. This is the president of the United States. You may not yeah. respect the man, but you must respect the office. Like, no, it's funny. It's funny. Like Trump infecting like literally everyone around him is is actually kind of funny. You know, so <laughs> so yeah. Should Damn. I do the uh, verso yeah. read? Let's do it. On that note, <laughs> all right. Well, guys, it's a new month, and we have new verso book club selections. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of radical publishing, each member tier is 50% off your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month and includes all of our ebooks. The comrade tier is $20 a month, and if you join in October, you'll get the Verso Book of Feminism. Revolutionary words from our millennia of rebellion, edited by Jesse Kindig. A Kick in the Belly, Women, Slavery, and Resistance by Stella Dadzi. An event, perhaps, a biography of Jacques Derrida by Peter Salmon. A new edition of The Politics of Friendship by Jacques Derrida. Wow, he's in, he's in it twice. The Verso no- Notebook, a line notebook with a classic Verso cover. Plus, you get 15 additional ebooks. Great. Great deal. All around. That is a great deal. Um, yeah. And then maybe you can fill uh, whatever device is behind you with books instead of shoes, Nando. Right. People are gonna <laughs> I'm just keeping the me. joke going. I'm just keeping the good. Do you see the – it's women's shoes. I collect women's shoes. I'm into that, okay? <laughs> Don't kink shame me. No, no, no. There's nothing wrong with that as long as 
The women consented to giving you their footwear. I'm just saying. You know, I paid good money for these <laughs> shoes. Come on. <laughs> Open market. This, we, live in, we live in a market society, Anna. Okay? True. True. <laughs> good point. Oh, man. Yeah. I can't All wait right. for the well, tweets. I, I know. I know. Um, that's why you just got to find, like, some tapestry to, like, hang behind you like I did. No, yeah. no one knows like how many LA, books I have. LA cityscape. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's pink. I'm enjoying it. I know I'm also going to enjoy your commentary. Uh, your decode. So, what are you decode decoding segment. today, Nando? Oh, just capitalism. It's a small, tidy subject. All right. Well, the coronavirus has claimed over 200,000 American lives and over 1 million people around the world. And it's even infected the friggin' president of the United States. But eventually, we will get over the plague. Sooner or later, there will be a vaccine and life will go back to quote-unquote normal. But the real lasting effect of the pandemic is going to be economic. Just this week, Disney announced that it was going to lay off a staggering 28,000 workers. That's right, Dom. Disney is laying off 28,000 domestic employees at its parks experiences and product segment. Now, that will affect employees across all levels, hourly, salaried, and executive roles. Disney is saying that 67% of those affected are part-time workers. 67% were part-time workers, meaning precarious, underemployed workers. But that wasn't the only grim news of the week. The airline industry announced that it, too, was letting go of tens of thousands of workers. Thousands of airline industry workers are out of a job, hoping Congress will send a financial lifeline their way. Many of them are being furloughed or laid off today after talks on Capitol Hill to extend government relief programs amid the pandemic stalled. Across the board, an estimated 45,000 employees are being affected by these job cuts. And this is not some temporary bump in the road. The damage, in many ways, will be permanent. Just let CBS News' transportation correspondent explain. To talk more about this, we are joined by CBS News uh, transportation correspondent Chris Van Cleve. Chris, great to have you with us on this sad day for the airline industry. So tell us, how long could these cuts last and how will it impact travelers? Well, you know, for some of these employees, their jobs may never come back. And the airlines are predicting a four to five year recovery back to 2019 levels. And it's possible that, that some of these real junior people who were furloughed may, may not actually get an opportunity to get those jobs back. Yeah, I had no idea you could be a transportation correspondent, but that sounds fun. Anyway, you would think that the devastation would not would worry the investor class. I mean, at the end of the day, someone has to buy their shit. And if no one has a job, well, no one can buy shit. So you would think. But no, take a look at this investor woman's reaction to the Disney news on CNBC. Yeah, I, I think it's important that they're actually really trying to get a handle on their expenses. You know, the saying, never let a crisis go to waste. So here, maybe this is an opportunity for them to get leaner, to have some cover to do that. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, this woman is a psychopath. I mean, her reaction to nearly 30,000 people having their livelihood destroyed is that, hey, it's a good chance for Disney to get their labor costs in line so that investors like me can see an extra couple points on our investment. So who is this woman? Well, her name is Karen Feinerman, and she's the CEO of something called Metropolitan Capital. And here's how a glowing pre-2008 profile in The Guardian described her. Quote, she's worth $100 million, runs a $400 million hedge fund, 
has two sets of twins and four nannies. Fun. The piece goes on. Karen Feinerman of Metropolitan Capital in New York is actually willing to crack open the secretive testosterone-rich world of the hedge fund manager. She has decided to go against the prevailing ethos, keep your head down, don't get a profile, and make a virtue of her pioneering status as one of the first women to run a hedge fund. Oh, I get it. So she's just a girl boss. Yeah, sure. Celebrating the fact that tens of thousands of people are now wondering how they'll make rent this month while she counts her millions and barks orders at her four nannies. But, you know, she's just leaning in, I guess. But seriously, uh, the news uh, coming out of Disney and the airline industry validates a Washington Post analysis that said the economic collapse has sparked, sparked by the pandemic is triggering the most unequal recession in modern U.S. history, delivering a mild setback for those at or near the top and a depression-like blow for those at the bottom. The Post continues, At the height of the coronavirus crisis, low-wage jobs were lost at about eight times the rate of high-wage ones. The devastation was deepest amongst the lowest paid, but middle-class jobs were not spared. A clear trend emerged. The less workers earned at their job, the more likely they were to lose it as businesses across the country closed. By the end of the summer, the downturn was largely over for the wealthy, White-collar jobs had mostly rebounded, along with home values and stock prices. The shift to remote work strongly favored more educated workers, with many, with as many as 6 in 10 college-educated employees from working from home at the outset of the crisis, compared to about 1 in 7 who have only high school diplomas. And this, of course, is a political choice. People bemoan the lack of uh, the gridlock in the American political system, and rightly so. But when it came time to bail out investors... Congress passed a law called the CARES Act in about 15 minutes. So the House is clearly passing this unprecedented $2.2 trillion bill today. Matt, what are your concerns? Well, I mean, it's not really a $2 trillion bill. It's more like a 6 to $10 trillion bill. So one of the reasons you can tell that the bill is packed with corporate goodies is that, you know, Congress is debating and trying to figure out, oh, you know, is it $2 trillion, you know, a bunch of money for hospitals or, or money for cities? And meanwhile, a couple of days ago, Larry Kudlow is on a press conference and says, actually, this is a $6 trillion bill. And it's like, how does a bill go from $2 trillion to $6 trillion without anyone really noticing? Um, and the answer is there's a bunch of stuff in there. And, you know, there are people on Wall Street chattering about how it's actually going to be $10 trillion because, you know, what's another four? Um, and, and that's how you know that the bill is just packed with stuff for uh, for Wall Street, for large monopolists. And it's done through a variety of opaque slush funds, um, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC guarantees of bank debt. There's a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, some of us who worked in the financial crisis noticed, paid attention to, said, oh, that's where they're stealing all the money. So it's a $2 trillion bill. There's a slush fund or something. Maybe it's a $6 trillion bill. Maybe it's 10. Who knows? The point is... That despite the fact that Congress essentially gave companies trillions of dollars, they did not attach any strings to that money. Yes, there was a temporary expansion of unemployment insurance and, of course, the $1,200 check, but those are gone now. But many European governments, such as Denmark's, did attach some strings, and they promised to pay to they, they pay 75 to 90 percent of the workers' salaries if businesses did not firing them, fire them, ensuring that the bailout money was not just a blatant transfer of wealth to the top. So without massive government intervention to help regular people, corporations are using the pandemic to, quote, get leaner and fire people. Just because we all had to quarantine and social distance for months, the wheel of capitalism kept on turning. 
And like Karen Feinerman said, this is the time to purge workers and not just lean in, but get lean. This kind of purging is nothing new for capitalism. A recession or depression is a far more dramatic expression of a process that capitalism repeats again and again naturally. This is what Marx refers to as the, quote, reserve army of labor. He uses this phrase to distinguish between those workers within the active workforce workforce, and those in the reserves, also known as the unemployed. This army of reserve unemployed workers allows the capitalists to, to fix a potential problem. As they push their workers to create more and more, eventually, eventually labor markets tighten and wages rise. But rising wages are a big, big problem for the owners because they threaten profit margins. Profits are, of course, the point of the whole enterprise. So if an owner can get more units of goods with better technology and fewer workers, well, guess what, workers? You're fired. While technology can temporarily improve the conditions of workers that are lucky enough to keep their job, the presence of unemployment itself will eventually allow the capitalists to screw over their own workers because they can be more easily replaced by that army of reserve workers waiting on the sidelines. And that is one of the key contradictions at the heart of the capitalist system. It needs workers to do the labor to make all the stuff, but it also needs both a surplus population of unemployed people and markets of people that buy all of the stuff. But capitalists hate their own workers because they eat into their profits and they do annoying things like unionize, which is why you're seeing so many capitalists take the ghouls who run, like, like so many capitalists like the ghouls who run Uber desperately trying to automate workers away. The problem is that if they, every capitalist automated their entire workforce, eventually there would be no markets. And inequality, the kind we're seeing today, is a feature, not a bug of capitalism. There's been a lot of talk about how inequality has been on the rise for a while now. But that's really just capitalism reverting back to the norm. The, post, the post-war drop in inequality, in retrospect, is just a temporary state of affairs after two world wars and one Great Depression destroyed the capitalist class wealth. And they've learned since then and inequality has gone back to what it was during the Gilded Age. Our only hope is to transcend it. I love this topic. I love this topic so much, especially when you consider the way the CARES Act was written to essentially, you know, provide loans to businesses unless they promise to keep their workers on board. But what Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize at the time when that um, when the CARES Act passed was that there was an expiration date to that rule. And so all these companies kept their workers to take that money and and have that money forgiven um, as loans. And then as soon as September 30th came around and that rule expired, that's when you get these massive layoffs um, in the airline industry. Disney also reported that they uh, were going to lay off and have laid off 28,000 of their own workers. Um, And so one of the biggest issues that I have is, of course, the heart of it is how this system is supposed to work. This is the way it's supposed to work. Um, But at the same time, you have congressional lawmakers who are elected by constituents to represent them intentionally writing these laws in this way that essentially screw us all over. Um, And it's 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 beyond frustrating. And I love the point that you made uh, uh, about the markets, how with this giant population of unemployed people, well, then who's going to buy your products? You know, you can automate every single job, but who who's going to have the money to buy your products? And so this mm-hmm. is where I get worried because the Fed comes in. They just 
you know, digitize money. They don't really print money. And they bail out all these companies. And what I'm curious about, and no one has been able to answer this question, just answer it clearly. How long can the Federal Reserve do that? Because it's all like it's all inflating this giant bubble. Yeah, the fat cats are getting rich. They're paying themselves giant bonuses right now. Disney, for instance, had a number of executives who agreed to pay cuts early on during the pandemic. But all of their pay beginning in late August went back to normal, you know, their normal compensation as if the pandemic isn't still moving forward, as if they're not about to lay off all these people. So I would love, I mean, if anyone's watching this and you've come across any content that clearly explains how long the Federal Reserve can continue inflating this bubble, please let me know. But so far, everyone's like, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, you would think it would have, this bubble would burst by now, but it hasn't. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the presence of the, the way the Federal Reserve kind of works is, is incredibly opaque. Uh, very few people understand it. It's completely outside of like any democratic input, you know, like I, I I'm, a, I'm guessing like the vast majority of lawmakers like have no idea what's going on at the Federal yeah. Reserve and they just kind of do things and like trillions of dollars here, blah, 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 there. And like, no one really like <laughs> actually understands like what all of that means. And with this, particular bill, the CARES Act, like, I don't think we'll really understand its effect until years from now. I mean, it's, it's such a fundamental restructuring of corporate power, that it's just the effects of it are something that we we won't be able to really understand for a long time. Um, And it's just, and, and it passed 96 to zero in the Senate, like every single senator voted for it. And you kind of understand, you I like, I, I sympathize with that, uh, with that, because at the end of the day, like they needed to do something to help people. Like, it, like this, this thing was going to collapse. Like everyone was like walking off toward the, toward the ledge, um, and the the corporate class, the the sort of capitalist owners of everything in the society, basically were able to hold a gun to everyone's head and be like, "Yeah, just give us trillions of dollars, and we'll we'll allow we'll allow little little crumbs here for for you regular people." And like, mm-hmm. you know, that's just it. Just shows like how captured the system is. And if you zoom out even further, like you you look, I mean, and, and it get, you, I get the feeling that the it's it's basically like they're looting the safe while like the whole building is burning, right? Like that. Yeah. You know, don't for, let a good for, crisis go to waste, Nando. Don't, don't let a good crisis go to waste. But I think that there's this feeling that you know, and you're seeing it now with all the with all like the sort of new aggression towards China that that China was uh, as when it opened up its its market to American capitalists like that kind of sustained the the system for a while because like the 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 market in the united states was like going to decline eventually as declining wages right but like china was like this growing new thing and like all of a sudden we had access to like all these billions of people and their incomes were rising so like great uh you know new markets for for uh for american capitalists like you're seeing this like with hollywood and the mba like china is like a their, their biggest market right now and like they need it they need they need those access to these new markets but like eventually like that's going to dry up you know because for a million reasons but like the chinese government is is wise to what's going on and like eventually they're going to like you know and they're starting to do that which is why um people here are having a freak out but like so they're where where are they going to go next like there are no no like there's no new markets to to conquer and um so eventually like they just have to i don't know like rob the safe while the building's burning, like they just take everything uh, in the short run and then live to see another day. I don't know. Like in the long run, we're all dead. Like the, 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 the Keynes quote. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, 
it's something's going to happen. Like there's going to be some sort of rupture. Like all, like you said, this, can can the trillions of dollars keep flowing uh, indefinitely? Like this quantitative easing, which no one really understands that well either, which is just like inflating. Like uh, like something's going to happen, and I'm I am certainly not smart enough to to know what it is or even fully understand all of it. Um, but it's it's it it really is like it seems like we're arguing about noise ninety ninety percent of the time when like all this is going on. <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. And look, that's part of the reason why I really appreciated having Nomi Prinz on the show, because Nomi Prinz, who, you know, was a Wall Street insider and decided to quit because she was so disgusted by the, you know, activities that were going on. And she essentially became a whistleblower for what was happening at at Wall Street. She wrote a whole book um, on easing uh, called Collusion. I highly recommend you guys read it. And uh, she's told me multiple times, she's like, the worst thing you can do right now is invest in the markets because it's going to come crashing down. Obviously, it's impossible to time it. Uh, but nothing that we see in the stock market right now is based in reality. I mean, Americans have not been able to spend much money. I mean, the money that they do spend usually comes in the form of credit, which is why consumer debt is in the trillions right now, much higher than it was uh, prior to the 2008 economic collapse. And I'm talking about consumer debt that does not even include mortgages. I think the number is around $4.2 trillion. Yeah. Um, But yeah, and and look, the CARES Act, it was a mixed bag. I want to make sure we're absolutely clear on that. Because the robust unemployment benefits, uh, which of course have expired, the additional $600 a week uh, that's subsidized by the federal government, if you look at the trends, it was the first time in a long time that working Americans were able to put a little bit of money away to save a little bit of money. And that, that tells you something, that, to, to, that meager $600 a week is so much more than what yeah. American workers are getting paid by these companies that rake in, you know, billions of dollars in profit every year and then got bailed out during the pandemic. So I love this topic and I think you did a great job um, covering Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, my topic's a little bit different, um, but it has to do with Democrats just loving to shoot themselves in the foot. Like they. <laughs> Any strategy they can identify as a losing strategy, they'll go for it. They'll go for it right away. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes I just wish, like, I, I don't, I don't belong in in the Democratic Party. I'm sure you feel the same way, uh, but obviously, yeah. we don't belong in the Republican Party. And it's so we go for the closest thing when push comes to shove, which is Democrats. But they're so embarrassing. Like, I'm so embarrassed by them. And this story perfectly outlines why. So early Friday morning, as most Americans were learning about Donald Trump's positive coronavirus test for the first time, and before Joe Biden had an opportunity to do or say a damn thing about that diagnosis, Fox and Friends was already attacking him. Watch. It is unclear whether or not Joe Biden even knows this has happened yet, because famously out on the trail, he has said a number of times, I get up at eight o'clock. You got to wonder whether or not his aides woke him up early to tell him the news. Well, you have a good point, Steve. It's interesting that it is now after 6 a.m. on the East Coast and the uh, former vice president has not responded. No statement, no Twitter. Now, it is interesting also, I think, to uh 
presume on some level, I don't want to get in front of it, but, you know, from what we've seen with Vice President Joe Biden at the DNC in Wilmington and everywhere else on the campaign trail, he has made the president's handling of the coronavirus his main uh, uh, criticism of the president, why he should replace him. So I suspect we should hear something soon. Okay, so they had already begun the offensive attack. And that's what Republicans are really good at. They don't play defense. They play offense. And remember, Americans learned about Donald Trump's positive coronavirus test at 1 a.m. in the morning, okay, Friday morning. And so at 6 a.m., Fox and Friends is always already like, oh, oh, what's going on? What's going on? Why hasn't, why hasn't Biden said anything yet? Has he said anything? He hasn't said anything yet. Oh, you know what? This is the heart of his campaign, attacking Trump over his handling of coronavirus. Let's see what he's going to do. It would be really wrong for him to keep, you know, playing negative ads or campaigning negatively against Trump when, oh, poor Trump, he's gotten sick. We can't do that. We must be civil. And what drives me crazy is that Democrats, because they're so fearful of right-wingers of all people attacking them, fold immediately. Fold immediately. So um, it was a brilliant strategic move by Fox. Because here's what Fox understands. And here's what everyone understands, to be quite honest with you. Joe Biden doesn't have an inspiring campaign. Joe Biden has uttered the words, nothing will fundamentally change. Joe Biden has only relied on how he's the good guy, Trump's the bad guy. And you want to know how I know that Fox is completely aware of this strategy and how they're going to use it against him now that Donald Trump has tested positive for COVID? Well, take a look at this exchange on Fox and Friends, same morning. But I think that you should not forget that a lot of this is the result of an enthusiasm gap among the different voters. It's not that Biden voters don't have enthusiasm. It's just that it's mostly based around their hatred for Donald Trump, not about actual like of their candidate. Whereas for Trump voters, there really is this genuine excitement and enthusiasm and a desire to come out and show support. And so that will continue. So she's right. She's right. There is an enthusiasm gap. And so if Biden isn't campaigning on how terrible Trump is, What does he have left? And by the way, is Biden going to fold? Is he going to uh, fall for this offensive attack by Fox and other right wingers? And uh, the truth is, the answer is, yeah, it totally worked. So uh, Jonathan Martin from New York Times reported midday on Friday, Joe Biden is taking down his negative ads, going all positive per source familiar. Great. Decision was made before White House put out uh, word (laughs) that Trump was going to Walter Reed. Now, of course, this story about Donald Trump's coronavirus diagnosis has uh, certainly evolved. Uh, First, we heard that he was going to receive treatment in the White House. Then it appeared that his condition was worsening and he uh, was then airlifted to Walter Reed. Uh, First, we heard that he had no symptoms, mild symptoms, no fever, low fever. Then all of a sudden, we hear that he actually has a moderate fever. Um, And then, by the way, breaking news this morning is that Donald Trump's own doctor reported that he had known about his positive COVID test for 72 hours, meaning he knew as early as Wednesday that he had tested positive for coronavirus. More on that later. But for Joe Biden to decide to now abandon the heart of what his whole campaign strategy has been really leaves a giant question mark in my mind. What is he going to do? 
And why would he make this decision, even if we know that the right's going to attack him no matter what, regardless of what he does? So why not use this opportunity to really lean in to what your campaign strategy was? This is the perfect opportunity to point to the fact that Donald Trump has failed to govern and lead this country appropriately during a pandemic. More than 200,000 Americans are dead as a result of that. Donald Trump is so incompetent and so much of a narcissist that he's not even able to keep himself safe from this virus or members of his own White House safe from this virus. I think that that's valuable campaign material to use, again, especially if you've decided that you're going to abandon policy, you're going to abandon the left with your campaign and focus solely on how awful Donald Trump is. Um, And by the way, the right wing has no leg to stand on. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted in 2014 that he hoped uh, that uh, Obama embraced people during the Ebola pandemic, essentially saying that he hopes that Donald, uh, that Obama gets Ebola. There it is. President Obama has a personal responsibility to visit and embrace all people in the U.S. who contract Ebola. That's what he tweeted in October of 2014. (laughs) They have no leg to stand on. So why are Democrats falling for this strategic, offensive attack and folding immediately. It's so pathetic. It's so weak. And I absolutely can't stand it. Donald Trump refused to encourage people to wear masks. Donald Trump, after shutting down the country for about two weeks, started pressuring states to reopen their economy. He wanted everything open by Easter, if you can recall. Uh, Donald Trump wanted schools to open prematurely. He did not encourage social distancing. He held several super spreader events. This is material that Biden should use against Trump. I don't care that Donald Trump contracted the virus. He's going to get the best care. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I suspect he's going to be fine. At least that's how I feel. If he's not, I guess it is what it is, as Donald Trump said during an interview with Axios. So there is a clear path for Biden to both look compassionate, but also have a winning message. The only problem is he has rejected that strategy, even though it is clearly the best strategy. He could talk about Medicare for all, especially at a time where tens of millions of Americans lost their jobs during the pandemic and also lost their employer-provided health insurance that comes along with that. But he won't do it. He could also talk about a jobs guarantee through the Green New Deal. So many people are unemployed. More and more people are getting laid off now in the airline industry, in hospitality. Disney announced 28,000 people getting laid off. So a guaranteed jobs policy through the Green New Deal seems pretty sweet. But as we learned during the first presidential debate, he ain't about that. You support the Green New Deal? Pardon me? Do you support No, I don't support the Green oh, New Deal. Oh, you don't? Oh, well, that's a big not, statement. I support that means the you just lost the radical left. I, su- okay. I support oh, the don't. Biden plan that I put forward. <laughs> okay, great. Awesome. He could talk about wage increases, increasing the federal minimum wage. But instead, I suspect, because we know the Democratic Party, we've experienced how they've campaigned in the last several decades— that they are going to lean into this kind of nonsense. Saw this on Twitter this week. Jill Biden is the modern version of a gay icon that Melania Trump wishes she could be. She's a Catholic (laughs) straight woman who's married. Like, what? 
Why is she a gay icon? That's ridiculous. Or we might get some fluffy pieces about how relatable Kamala Harris is based on her footwear. This video of her has gone viral. As we can see, the vice president, vice presidential candidate was stepping off the plane uh, wearing these shoes, and it's gone viral on social media. The Washington Post has praised this wardrobe choice, saying that it is by Tuesday morning, videos by the two reporters who witnessed her arrival had been viewed nearly by 8 million people on <gasps> Twitter. So, you know, if you're about to get evicted or if you're having trouble feeding your family because of the economic destruction that Americans are feeling right now as a result of congressional lawmakers abandoning them during this pandemic, I mean, at least you know that Kamala Harris has good taste in footwear. That'll keep me full. You know, that'll keep our kids nice and satisfied when they're starving. Awesome. And in times like this, when I'm quite honestly, angry, frustrated, and feeling discouraged. I like to rely on the words of someone who inspires me and inspired uh, one of the original hosts of the show, Michael Brooks. Here's Cornell West talking about what we need in this country, what we need to focus on, and what we need to do to avoid spectacle. It's another way of saying that I am who I am because somebody loved me. Somebody cared for me. Somebody attended to me. And for me, that is at the core of paideia, of deep education, the formation of attention, use the wonderful language of Simone Weil. How do we engage in attending to the things that matter? Not image, not spectacle, not money, position, title but of courage, compassion, service to others. I love, I love that speech. I love pretty much everything Cornell West has to say. But I do want to leave this segment with one more video featuring uh, Dr. West, because during the Democratic National Convention, you know, there was, I, I'm going to admit, an incredibly sweet moment featuring um, a young boy who suffers from a stutter. As we all know, Joe Biden also suffered from a stutter. And so having someone in a leadership position who can talk to these issues means a lot to that little boy. But the way that Cornell West responded to that moment during the DNC, although it might seem harsh to some, is incredibly important because it shifts the focus away from spectacle and toward the issues that have been harming not only Americans, but civilians, people around the world. So take a look at that. About a few months ago, I met him in New Hampshire. He told me that we were members of the same club. We, we, stutter. It was really amazing to hear that someone like me became vice president. The mass incarceration regime, you had a whole lot of precious folk who went to jail who stuttered because of Biden. You got a whole lot of folks who stuttered in, in Iraq who were killed because of Biden's support. We have to be honest about those issues that are, relate to the soul of America. 
You can't have a soul with massive militarism. You can't have a soul with massive Wall Street greed. These are fundamental issues. These are fundamental issues. And those are the fundamental issues that Biden could focus on. Those are the fundamental issues that are winning issues, substantive issues that could make him appear compassionate, yes, even toward people like Donald Trump, while also providing an incredibly inspiring message that resonates with people across the board. But he's unwilling to do that because his corporate donors wouldn't want it. Stephanie Rule would probably have a meltdown about it on MSNBC. And I guess to Biden, that's more important than having a popular winning message that can actually defeat Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, but at least Kamala wears Chuck Taylors. She also wore like Timberlands and that was like a Yas Queen moment. Yeah, I know. Um, I know that'll 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 solve it all. I mean, our our, our guest, Daniel Bessner, uh, his a lot of his uh, studies, academic studies are on how dominant liberals were in the sort of mid 20th century. Right. That like. His specific realm was in foreign policy, but this was this was in every in every aspect of American life. Like liberalism was dominant basically uh, after the after the New Deal through uh, the election of Reagan in 1980, and you know like even Republican presidents like Eisenhower like bought into the New Deal. Uh, so did Richard Nixon, who did all kinds of government reforms that would now be seen as kind of crazy radical left, like created the EPA and. It's, you know, like did they taunt with China and all that stuff um, and the Soviet Union. Um, and, um, you know, the, 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 the destruction of liberalism by Reagan and, and others um, was so thorough and so complete that the path to political power for Democrats was to like out try to outflank Republicans on the right. I mean, this was true. Uh, of someone like Joe Biden. I mean, that's how he made his political career in the 1970s by basically trying to just become right wing and just punch left. Right. You know, like this was true of of his support for uh, his, his opposition to busing, his, you know, his attempt to outflank Republicans on the right on criminal justice issues and things like that. Um, and it, it's you're, what you're seeing now. I think the reason why so many people are so frustrated by our politics is because it's there is a sense that that era of dominance, the sort of right wing hegemonic era of dominance, is cracking. Like you see cracks in the foundation. If there's there's a it, you you sense that it's weak and it's and something can be something can be achieved if we just kind of smash right through it. Like a new kind of hegemon can 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 arise. Yet the Democratic Party, which is the only vehicle with which we can meaningfully smash that right-wing consensus um, is still stuck in that old mindset, right? The old mindset that says, like, we basically have to be Republicans in everything, in literally everything. Um, and and that's our path to political power. Like, we have to sister-soldier moment every single time. Like, a sister-soldier moment is the best thing you do. Like, that was Biden... That Biden going, coming out against the Green New Deal was his like quote unquote attempt at assist a soldier moment, right? Um, and and that's that's just hardwired into his brain, um, yeah. and that's what's so frustrating about this current moment. It's like we sense we sense that that something can be achieved, yet the people that are doing that in our name are incapable of achieving it. Yeah, and you know, as I mentioned in in that segment. 
there's just like this emphasis on the spectacle. There's this emphasis on identity related stuff, but on a very superficial level. And it's, yeah. it's transparent that they can't even be consistent in committing to that because, I mean, they didn't even have Julian Castro speak at the Democratic National Convention. How are you guys going to pretend like you have like the moral high ground when it comes to identity related yeah. issues when you guys snub um, one of your own, especially when you're campaigning against a president who started his initial uh, run with uh, anti-Mexican messaging, you know? But don't worry, uh, some random publication has decided that uh, uh, Joe Biden's wife is an icon. A queer for the gay icon. Community. She's queer. She's okay. She's, she's, what? Yeah. What? It, that was the, one of the most, the strangest, most random things. Like, in what universe is Dr. Jill Biden some sort of gay icon? Like, I don't know. It's like the most insane. It's insane. And look, can anyone more than be, anything, like, can I be a gay icon? I want to be a gay icon. What do I have to do? If you're if you're a corporate Democrat and you're running for something, of course, right. of course you can. I mean, that's that's actually all they'll probably rely on um, yeah. to, you know, for your for your platform. But luckily, that's not the kind of person you are. Um, by yeah. the way, Daniel Bessner is already with us. So since you mentioned oh. him, um, if you're it. cool with it. Maybe we can go uh, to Daniel now. I see like messages popping up on my screen next door. Um, what's oh. up, Daniel? Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> of course, no, it's all. It's I'm really glad you dressed up you for on. the big Jacobin show. <laughs> yeah, no, the naturally. hoodie and the beard. I mean, I shaved this morning. I got a haircut, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't own no. any other clothing, so this is what you get with with me. Right. With me, you get what you get. <laughs> So Daniel Bessner is a historian, um, as Nando has told me several times, one of the smartest people he knows. Uh, Daniel, you and I are, are getting to know each other, but every time I've talked to you, you've like clarified some historical events that I've had questions about. So I was hoping that you can kind of help us dissect uh, a little of what's happening um, in Nagorno-Karabakh um, and uh, the war that's broken out there. And uh, the Armenian side certainly considers it a war, considering all the... Um, weaponry that's now being uh, given to uh, the Azerbaijan government by Turkey. I think it's fair to call it a war. Um, and then later we should uh, focus a, a little bit about what Turkey is doing under Erdogan, um, how their foreign policy um, is changing and, and how they're kind of taking advantage of this vacuum that Donald Trump is providing for them. Uh, but first, let's let's get to the basics. Uh, so Nagorno-Karabakh is an area, region, mountainous region, um, that's predominantly uh, occupied by Armenians, ethnic Armenians specifically, and has been governed by Armenians uh, for a few decades now. Um, there have been a number of, you know, there's been hostility in that region for a long time because Azerbaijan feels that that is their land. I want to be clear about something. Historically speaking, dating back to 150 BC, ethnic Armenians have lived there. The majority of people living there today are Armenians. And so um, there's all this historical context I want to get to. But can you just describe what what happened historically that led to the war that we're seeing today? 
Sure. Um, I mean, so this is an issue that goes back hundreds of years with both Armenia and Azerbaijan being in some sense the crossroads of empires, being spaces that were historically dominated by different empires over time, whether you're talking about sort of the Russian expansions of the medieval period, uh, the Ottoman Empire, or the Persian Empire over time. So these are spaces that have historically historically at least been dominated by outside powers. And I think that's important to remember that in, in the era of nationalism, this is a, a deep historical memory of both countries. Um, so um, as the Ottoman Empire begins to collapse at the end of World War I, there's this surge of nationalism, right? When we're thinking in the United States, we think oftentimes of Woodrow Wilson and his focus on the creation of new nationalisms in Eastern Europe. And that's Absolutely accurate, but this is actually a global phenomenon, whether you're talking about Egypt or you're talking about uh, Korea or whether you're talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan. So there's this, this surge of new nationalist sentiment that um, begins to happen in, basically during and after World War uh, One. And in this fight, and I think it's important to remember, is that you have the coalitions that continue to affect what's going uh, on today begin to form, where Russia effectively backs Armenia and the collapsing Ottoman Turkish Empire uh, supports Azerbaijan. And, and during this time, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, and forgive my uh, pronunciation if it's not particularly uh, fantastic, but this is always uh, w- was a major um, issue of concern for all sides because it was traditionally an, an ethnically mixed region. And it's a, it's a mountainous region that's not so easy to control as mountainous regions generally are. And you could think on the border of Pakistan or Afghanistan, where the Pashtuns are. And so uh, you see a lot of these issues occurring throughout roughly Central Asia or Southwest um, Asia. And I think that's really uh, important. So what happens is that the Soviet Union, of course, eventually takes over or uh, asserts political control over both territories, I believe in the early uh, 1920s. And then what Stalin does very early on, uh, I believe in 1921 or 1922, I think 19, no, maybe it's 19, whatever, early 1920s, is that he actually gives the, I'm sorry? Get your facts straight. You're right. right. Early 1920s. Yeah, Uh, early 1920s. I believe 21. So he actually gives Nagorno-Karabakh to uh, Azerbaijan. Um, And then a few years after that, it's actually carved out into what's essentially an autonomous region, an independent region, which is something that the Soviets are experimenting with uh, in their early 1920s. There was actually discussion, for example, of creating an autonomous Jewish state. You know, uh, there there were different Zionisms that weren't necessarily focused on Israel. And these are sorts of the experiments that are happening. Uh, But when Stalin creates this autonomous region, he creates a border zone where it makes the overwhelming majority of the population Armenian. Um, But it's I think um, Azeris also think they have control of it. So this is like sowing the seeds of what's going to come to fruition a hundred years later. Um, So as the Soviet Union begins to collapse in the late 1980s, you get a surge of nationalism throughout what will soon become the former Soviet territories. And you get in uh, Armenia, you get sort of um, oppression of Azeris. And in Azerbaijan, you get oppression of Armenians. Uh, So this is, again, sowing the tensions that eventually erupt when the Soviet Union collapses in the early um, 1990s, uh, and and you get the, these these fi- these fighting um, 
these essentially a proxy war. And throughout all this, Russia continues its support of Armenia and Turkey continues its support of Azerbaijan. And of course, there are deep anti-Turkic sentiments in uh, Armenia due to the genocide, uh, which killed about uh, one and a half million people. Uh, sorry, which killed about 300,000 people, I believe it is. Uh, and uh, no, sorry, one and a half million people and also deracinated uh, many, many more. So Armenia begins to associate the Azeris as sort of Turks in a sense that, that they're, they're, that they're, um, viewed as sort of aligned with the Turks. And of course, it's important to uh, emphasize that uh, the Azeris and the Turks are actually uh, different in terms of their um, Islamic heritage, right? The Azeris are Shiites and the uh, Turks are Sunni. Uh, But in the sort of the Armenian mind, they're uh, very much aligned. And I think that that's actually uh, true. Um, And so there's a war in the early 1990s uh, and... um, it, it, it basically focuses essentially on uh, over uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, right? So, guys, is, is everything clear? This is this is very. Do you got well? No, I think this is yeah. well, this is incredibly helpful. Um, you know, I uh, I am a dumb person, right? I I know very little about this conflict. You know, Anna is obviously it's, it's much closer to her, um, but I think it, I think it'd be helpful for me uh, and for the audience to to take to understand a little bit of the geography, of the region. So, let's take the first shot, which 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 outlines a little bit of what this looks like. Here on the map, you can see Armenia to the west, Azerbaijan to the east. Both were part of the Soviet Union before it disintegrated in the early nineties. And right where we see the two meet is an enclave called Nagorno-Karabakh. In the eyes of the international community, it's part of Azerbaijan. But its population is now almost entirely ethnic Armenian. In the late 80s and early 90s, Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a war over Nagorno-Karabakh. And despite the UN calling on Armenia to withdraw its troops, by 1994, Azerbaijan had lost. Nagorno-Karabakh declared independence and became part of Armenia in all but name. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I want to actually jump in at that point, okay? Because... What I'm having a difficult time understanding is, okay, so Stalin comes in, uh, he gets to decide that there's this autonomous region uh, that belongs to Armenians. But what we're hearing today over and over again is that, no, 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 international community recognizes this land as Azerbaijan's land. And uh, it is what it is. And you know, let's just completely ignore the ethnic cleansing that took place. Let's completely ignore the fact that in the 1990s, well, before the 1990s, in 1988, uh, this autonomous region um, voted overwhelmingly to join the country of Armenia. Right. And of course, Azerbaijan says, no, we don't want that. We disagree with it. Azerbaijan, by the way, wasn't a country until 1918 Uh, with the help of the Turkish government. uh, They slaughtered the people of Baku, which is now the capital of Azerbaijan. Right. And so the Armenians in this little sliver of land in this area want the right to self-determination. Again, they vote overwhelmingly to join Armenia uh, and be part of Armenia as a country. And uh, Azerbaijan doesn't like that. So more fighting, more war breaks out. And then you fast forward to the 1990s and Armenians win. They win, of course, with the help of Russia, uh, but they're able to ward off the aggression uh, by Azerbaijan and maintain uh, that land as a land that uh, is autonomous and that Armenia governs, that Armenians govern. And so 
how did it come to be that the international community decided like, no, this area that's overwhelmingly populated by Armenians, governed by Armenians, actually belongs to Azerbaijan? How did that happen? Right. So there, there's a big push after the Cold War not to change national borders. So I think that is basically what you want to think about it. So the Cold War ends and the United States emerges as a global hegemon. And one of the major things that people want to avoid um, in the United States and in the West, which is essentially dictating terms in a lot of um, in a lot of these instances, is the changing of national borders. So that even though so and you could actually see something similar in Crimea, right? Crimea, which is was historically Russian territory, but was given to um, Ukraine for various contingent historical reasons is also, you know, uh, a, a major issue of dispute. So I think that's just the Soviet uh, Union collapse desire to keep national borders as, as um, stable as possible in order to avoid what might some offensively be, uh, what might offensively be termed sort of the balkanization of the region. So I think that is, is a, a major reason why this is um, such a major issue. Uh, and then of course, there are just parochial national interests. Like Turkey receives an enormous amount of its natural gas and oil supplies from Azerbaijan. So they want to mm. support uh, Azerbaijan. Armenia hates Turkey uh, and they uh, continue to draw closer and closer to the Russian Federation after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the United States sells arms to both sides. So I think this is um, a region that, that's been long been in dispute. There are in, intense ethnic tension, tensions, and the international community essentially wants to stabilize it under what is viewed as sort of the uh, preconditions of the region going forward. And I think that is essentially uh, the, the, the reason why they wanted to do that. And what's interesting now is I think you have to put what's going on now in sort of the larger history of what I have begun to call the post post Cold War world um, so that you figure the last 25 years or so we've been living in the post Cold War world. We're now seeing the emergence of, of new geopolitical alliances and uh, new uh, assertions of power in different regions of the world, particularly as the United States becomes relatively weak. And, and in this instance, the United States is um, seemingly less interested in what's going on in Central and Southwest Asia than it, than it has ever been since the end of the Cold War, which is why you see, I think, what's going on now as uh, essentially a proxy war between Russia and Turkey, particularly as uh, under uh, Erdogan, uh, Turkey, it might be too strong to refer to it as a neo-Ottomanist foreign policy, but that's also not far off, where as Erdogan is trying to reassert Turkish hegemony in its region in a way that's similar to what the Ottoman Empire held before it collapsed at the end of World War One, um, And I think a lot of it's related to that. So instead of Turkey, you know, embracing a ceasefire, it's saying that this needs to be settled once and for all. And it's, you know, supporting Azerbaijan. And um, Russia is very strongly supporting Armenia because you're seeing uh, what I think is the effective creation of new geopolitical alliances and geopolitical logics as the United States' hegemony is in relative decline. So the question is, to what degree is Erdogan serious about pursuing this sort of neo-Ottomanist foreign policy? And given what's been going on in this recent war, he seems pretty goddamn serious. Uh, and again, particularly because of the energy supplies that Turkey relies on um, from Azerbaijan, whose pipeline... Um, on the way to Turkey actually uh, is very close to the Armenian border. So there's, of course, worries about if Armenia um, begins to expand its power, they'll be able to, you know, threaten Turkish energy should they take over the, uh, the pipelines in the region.
Yeah. Go ahead, Anna. I know. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm like really fired up about this topic. And for Fire those of up. you watching who who are saying that, um, you know, because we covered this on TYT, and of course, uh, Aziris are fired up about um, ensuring that their propaganda spreads online. And so, thank you for your threats. Uh, they don't intimidate me. Uh, but I will say that, um, you know, there's the issue that I have right now. Of course, is everything that's going on concerns me, but. Historically speaking, Russia has been incredibly uh, supportive of Armenia. That seems to be changing a little bit, right? Because Russia is supplying weapons to both sides. Now, they sell weapons mm. to the Armenian side at a deep discount, but they also sell weapons to the Zeris at a marked up price. That worries me. You also have the issue with Turkey involved. They're supplying drones and other weaponry to the Azerbaijan side. And, um, Kale, I'm actually going to skip ahead to the third video in this segment um, because it kind of gives you a sense of what all the different sides are saying. I want you to take a look at that, Daniel, and tell me what you think. Let's watch. Here's Azerbaijan's president. We only have one condition, he says. Armenian armed forces must unconditionally, fully, and immediately leave our lands. Armenia has no intention of agreeing. Here's its president. What they are trying to do is to force Armenians out of that, of the land that they historically lived, even before the Azerbaijan as a, as a, as a republic existed. So but in my vocabulary, it's called ethnic cleansing. And this intensification can be explained by looking internally and externally. First, domestic politics. In Armenia, this has been happening. Unfortunately, the Armenian prime minister, I, I think, has been forced by his own domestic politics to back away from the framework agreement that had been negotiated for years between his country and Azerbaijan. And then this is the situation in Azerbaijan. With the social problems, the falling price of oil, with the reforms that are needed in the economy, the war probably is the best possible outcome to make sure that public rallies around the leader. Um, so, yeah, so d domestic politics, I think, are relevant because um, with Azerbaijan, you know, the uh, Ilhan Aliyev, the leader of Azerbaijan, um, is in a little bit of trouble because oil prices have collapsed. Uh, they're having a difficult having a difficult time funding the social programs they have in their country. And so uh, he's pivoted to a much more nationalistic um, ideology slash messaging in order to garner support. And so now the focus uh, is on basically taking over that land, Nagorno-Karabakh, which again has been governed by and overwhelmingly populated by ethnic Armenians. Um, and what the president of Armenia said there is absolutely right. Armenians view this as a continuation of the ethnic cleansing that Turks uh, took part in in you know, uh, 1915. And so, yeah, look, where are Armenians going to go? They're going to be pushed out of the land that they've been living in to, to help Aliyev with his uh, political popularity at home. I mean, that's the way that I view it. Uh, but I could be wrong. I want to get your thoughts. Yeah. And I think I think ex what you said is really important because Azerbaijan has become fairly wealthy, or, uh, uh, especially when compared to our Armenia in the last few decades due to the the. Um, it's energy industry effectively. And if you actually look at um, Azeri culture, there's a lot of stuff sort of organized around uh, a lot of popular culture organized around the wealth that's brought by like oil and natural gas supplies to the point where there was actually a very popular Azeri, you know, pop tune, I think called like gasoline or, or benzo or something along those lines. So it's a very important oh, yeah. part 
Uh, yeah, hell, hell yeah. The Armenian uh, Daddy Yankee. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah. No, I don't. I'm, I'm oh, yeah, no. So it's, it's a, Daddy it's a Yankee really... had a song called Gasolina. <laughs> yeah, no, kind of. So, of course. But it, it, it's like literally a music video stationed at like a petrol station. So it's a very important part of the recent Armenian. Sorry, Azari. Uh, sorry, uh, I, I screwed that up. That was my fault. No, no worries. Uh, as a Azari national um, identity. And so as natural gas uh, prices uh, collapse, there's, of course, um, a lot of internal criticism that begins to uh, emerge about the ruling government. So I think that's exactly right. Uh, and this is why I might add states all over the world, maybe like is too strong a word, word but there's um, they like having sort of these peripheral wars because it serves as uh, a valve on public discontent. Whether you look at Kashmir in, in Pakistan or India or what's going on in Nagorno-Karabakh, in in um in vis-a-vis -vis Azerbaijan. So I think that that's exactly right. So that it allows one, uh, it allows a government, it allows a leader to sort of distract attention from um, internal problems by focusing on this hyper-nationalist war. And some could argue that's what Putin did during the invasion of uh, Ukraine and sort of the actions in Georgia um, in the 2000s. So Anna, I think that's I think that's exactly now what's fun about the situation. Turkey isn't backing down. Uh, whereas in the past, Turkey has been like a little bit reticent about what's going on. Now they're like, this is a full throw. We're, we're not only endorsing Azerbaijan, but we're saying we don't want a ceasefire. Uh, so that this is, um, I really think, a geopolitical conflict with Russia for regional hegemony in Southwest Asia. Like who's going, the Soviet Union controlled this territory for roughly 70 years. And now Turkey's trying, and particularly under Erdogan and his hyper-nationalist Neo-Ottomanist foreign policy is once again trying to reassert hegemony in this region. Um, so that's what makes it a, a real tinderbox, because if all it, you could get something like Syria, where it essentially becomes a proxy war for other different interests, just like Syria is a proxy war for hegemony in the Middle East. Um, the Azeri-Armenian um, uh, conflict could become a proxy war for control over this super important uh, energy mm -hmm. producing region. Um, so if you could start seeing literal, you know, people coming in to fight the war, you could start seeing money uh, go back and forth. You could start seeing most damagingly, you're already seeing it weapons flow into the region. And then you could have sort of this never ending low level conflict that goes up and down over time, but could literally last for decades has happened in a place like Kashmir. Um, and this, I just want to add uh, is why I think after the end of the cold war, you, you didn't get people trying to get the, the territory back to Armenia because they wanted to just have these stabilized borders, this new world order, which was obviously naive in retrospect, but this was the goal. Uh, and what we're seeing right now, and this is why I'm calling it the post-Cold post, post -Cold War order, the collapse of these sorts mm. of regional uh, agreements and regional alignments. And we're going to see more of that going forward as the United States' relative hegemony uh, begins to collapse. Uh, and I think this is a harbinger of what you're going to see in places like in, in the Indo-Pakistan-China region, right? Mm -hmm. With like disputed territories becoming places where proxy wars are being fought by larger great powers. And of course, it's the local weaker states that suffer because it's them who are going to be killed in, them, uh, in those regions that are going to have um, the weapons flow into them. As already happened in places like Western Pakistan. And has happened for decades and, and like what, what would be like Pashtunistan or whatever you'd want to call it. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by what you discussed, the, the post-Cold post War world, because, you know, it, the, toward the end of the, the Soviet Union the uh, uh, in the West, there was this kind of big push to sort of recognize 
these nation states, right? Like there was this kind of very simple idea that like, uh, oh, uh, like national self-determination for like Ukraine and and these these kind of Soviet bloc uh, countries is like this this obviously um, worthwhile thing to do. Like who could be against it, right? Um, um, but I think that 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 kind of push often um, unleashes these kind of nationalist forces um, and sentiments within within countries. And and sometimes it's like a little messy, right? There's people living. These national borders are not like they're not like set in stone for for from from the beginning of time. They're kind of created um, pretty much ad hoc uh, throughout history. And sometimes people get trapped on one side of the line and then the other side of the line. And when you kind of flare up these national nationalist uh, tendencies, um, the 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 situation can get quite violent. Um, and this happens like all over the world. You can count too many examples to count, right? But um, um, so what, what, what is the, what is the post cold, what, what is the theory around the post post cold war world? Like what, what is the kind of um, impetus behind it? And what is the, what, what, what is it? How's it going to shake out? Uh, how's it going to shake Not out? Not how's it going to shake out, but like, you know what I mean? Like what are the, what are, no, the, no, I, what are the conflicts at play? Uh, no, I, I think that's right. And just before I get to that, I think you, this is something you also see typically with mountainous regions, which are often ethnically mixed and are often very difficult to control. I mean, you see it in the 19th century with the mountainous regions of Italy. If anyone remembers mm. the beginning of Godfather Part Two, right? Like uh, the, the, the Don's father was fighting in a mountainous region because they are, right. you could hide in mountainous regions, you know, like Bin Laden did, for example. Uh, so I think these are also like tinderboxes just because of geography. Um, what I would say the post post cold war is going to be defined by is essentially regional struggles for hegemony between what might be called medium powers. So for example, uh, as Russia and the United States assert message in the Middle East, I think probably over time less, you're going to see more fighting between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, as uh, the United States retreats from um, Southwest Asia, Central Asia, you're going to see more fighting between Turkey and Russia. Uh, as the United States' hegemony in East Asia and South Asia uh, becomes less and less, you're going to see more fighting between uh, India and, and China, which are potential great powers, which are but which are just not as powerful um, as the United States. And so I think we're returning to a very not returning, we're entering a strange world where there is still one overwhelming military power, which is the United States. We all know the number is 750 military bases, an incredible amount spent on its military. Uh, but uh, while at the same time, the government itself of the United States becomes less and less interested in asserting actual hegemony, which leads um, or provides openings to medium to small great powers to begin to assert themselves in the region. Uh, so that's what I think going uh, to begin to see. Uh, and then the question is to what degree does China, for example, win its struggle with, uh, with India? Um, to what degree does Turkey win its struggle with Russia? Uh, I think that uh, played out over the next 10, 20, 30 years. So uh, one thing I wanted to add to what Nando said is, um, Nando, I think you make a good point, uh, but, you know, you do have to kind of look at the situation on a case-by-case basis because in the situation of Armenians and Nagorno-Karabakh, we're not just simply talking about similar people with similar religions uh, living in the same region. Armenia is specifically a Christian minority surrounded by Muslim enemies. 
And so that's part of the reason why uh, the people of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, want to be part of Armenia. Because again, we're talking about ethnic Armenians who overwhelmingly identify as Christians. And, uh, you know, they're being pushed out of uh, the land that they've lived in um, for centuries, literally centuries. And so uh, that's part of the reason why they want self-determination. They've been uh, brutalized by, uh, you know, Muslim Turks, uh, you know, dating back centuries. Uh, so that's part part of the problem here. I want to be very clear. I was not suggesting uh, otherwise. I mean, I, I think that the, in in the the sort of the the the, fun, the phenomenon I was talking about was like this kind of the the sort of 1980s thing where like the the existing national boundaries were kind of like set in stone, you know. So like the, again, like you see situations like you know Crimea where like the majority of the people there are Russians and like they're, they're not necessarily Ukrainians. They don't necessarily like right, a, you know. Right. Um, but like, but if you took it the existing national boundaries that you know anti or whatever, like there's this thing called Ukraine and there's, and if you just take, you know, the majority of people there, they're like, yeah, sure. We, we want the Crimea. And if they, you know what I mean? Like, so there's like this, yeah. this feeling of like, of the existing kind of pre, uh, I guess, 1991 or whatever national boundaries as these kind of set in stone things that are, uh, that are just like the way they are. I don't know. Like th- there was this, this feeling that, yeah. that there was like, that there wasn't this, this weird, this, like this kind of analysis that sometimes these situations are messier than 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 you can just see like lines on a map you know okay now i get what you were saying okay i misunderstood (laughs) what you were saying but yeah you're you're absolutely right about that which is why there's i feel a lot of frustration when i see the way uh western media covers this story because they absolutely ignore any and all historical context when discussing this, and they just simply say, "Well, you know, this 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 region is internationally recognized as Azerbaijan, so let's move on." No, but it's way more complicated than that, and the ramifications of just accepting that and ignoring the fact that that area um, has overwhelmingly voted uh, to join Armenia and is overwhelmingly populated by ethnic Armenians who do identify as Christians surrounded by Muslim enemies. That's relevant. That's relevant to what's happening in that area right now. And then, you know, I do also want to just quickly talk about and I think this is a good transition because we should focus on on Turkey outside of what it's trying to do to Armenia and, and Nagorno-Karabakh. But Donald Trump has uh, an incredibly friendly relationship with Erdogan of Turkey. Uh, he has business ties to him. Uh, Ivanka Trump also has some business dealings with Azerbaijan. And so that's certainly concerning when you look at how these types of conflicts in the past have been negotiated by what's referred to as the Minsk Group. Um, and it's led by France, the United States and Turkey. Um, now, the United States played a pretty important role in kind of doing what it could to uh, negotiate ceasefires, negotiate some calmness in that area. Donald Trump, though, is not only a buffoon, but has his own self-interests in mind. He was asked about this conflict, and here's his uh, ridiculous and ignorant answer. And there has been uh, going on the military action in the Karabakh, Azerbaijan. And uh, in where? The Azerbaijan. Yeah. The Karabakh. And the civilians are killed. And according to the officials from the Azerbaijan, they say the first shoot came from the Armenian. What's your comment on that? So we're looking at it very strongly. It just happened. And I know about it. I learned about it today. And yesterday and we're looking at it very strongly uh, we have a lot of good relationships in that area we'll see if we can stop it 
Yeah, the good relationship he's referring to is specifically with Erdogan. And um, if you guys can remember, not too long ago, Donald Trump had a phone conversation with Erdogan. Shortly after that, cleared U.S. troops from northeastern Syria, essentially paving the way for Erdogan to send, um, you know, his troops to the region to slaughter Kurds uh, who, you know, were our allies. And so if Erdogan has that kind of sway over Trump. I am concerned about what this means for the fate of ethnic Armenians living in that region. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and then this is this is really what bolsters the argument for this neo atomist foreign policy is that Erdogan is challenging Russia in places like Syria and Libya, where he's really making a play for this um, Ottoman territory, you know, this, the, the territory that used to be controlled by the Ottoman Empire for centuries. He seems to be saying that we're really going, we, Turkey, are really going to try to assert hegemony over this region. Um, But at the same time, he's also making sort of sops, I can't think of a better word, but sops to the West, right? Like if you look at the development of Turkey's foreign policy toward Israel over the last 20 years, it's essentially reversed to a relatively anti-Israel foreign policy to a relatively pro-Israel foreign policy, at least in in, in my understanding of the issue. So I think that what Erdogan is trying to do is he's trying to ingratiate himself with Western powers uh, in an attempt to reassert within the actual geopolitical conditions uh, a neo-Ottomanist hegemony over regions in which Turkey uh, historically had significant influence, like, for example, North Africa, like, for example, Southwest Asia. Uh, And so then the the question is, to what degree is he going to be able to do this? And I think that's that's really a, a, a very open question. Um, And uh, just one final point, you see this also in sort of Turkey's turn away from the EU. If you remember in the 2000s, there was like a very big push for Turkey, uh, within Turkey, for it to become part of the European Union. uh, And the Europeans essentially said no, uh, you know, that they weren't going to have, you know, a a powerful Muslim polity in the EU. And so you get basically a turn eastward as opposed to a turn westward, which came along with this neo-Ottomanist foreign policy, if if that's what you want to call it. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Erdogan, maybe maybe Trump was influenced by the flash mobs. I remember when, uh, you know, Erdogan uh, hired a bunch of flash mobs in New York. Do you guys remember this story? Mm-mm. No. So tr- no. in order to do like, uh, um, I guess there was the, the resolution in Congress to do the to recognize the Armenian genocide and Erdogan mm-hmm. financed like a propaganda campaign uh, in the United States. And part of it was like sky, uh, the sky writing thing uh, and also flash like did flash mobs in D.C. and New York of people like being like, vote no on the, you know, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just it's the whole it's 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 just so Disgusting. crazy. Yeah. yeah, and then and then we didn't get even uh, get um, into even like the fact that you know uh, the United States sells a lot of things to both Armenia and Azerbaijan, and there's an army in the United States as well, which is constantly disappointed with Congress, you know, not recognizing the Armenian genocide as such. Which is, I think, it was 2014 ish, 2013 or 2014 was the closest that the United States came to recognizing it, but it eventually didn't. Samantha Power actually writes about this in, in her book, where Obama was just like, "You cannot recognize it," which you know is yeah, really yeah. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and not just Obama. I mean, something very similar happened um, under the Trump administration, um, where I don't remember if it was the House or the Senate. So I apologize for that. Um, But Donald Trump intervened and told the GOP under no circumstances uh, should you recognize uh, the Armenian genocide. And it's because of our, you know, this country's America's, um, you know, strategic interests in 
aligning itself with Turkey. Uh, but I actually didn't know that the United States was selling weapons to both sides. That's true, really? Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that's my understanding. Let me check. Yeah, I'm almost positive, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be I mean, surprised. You want to weapons? If I'm wrong, I apologize. But that's that's my understanding. No, yeah. and, and no I know that Russia makes is. Sense. That's, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I, mean, I thought the U.S. was as well, but I, I may be wrong on that. I'm not a hyper specialist <laughs> in this region. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, should we, Nando? Do you want to move on to salt? Let's and do Daniel, it. do you want to do salt with us? Sure. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> right, this salty. is a good one. It's fun. You're gonna have a good time, Daniel. I always do All with right. you guys. <laughs> I know. Um, Okay, well, it's you know it's been kind of a, one of the themes of this show, uh, which is just how absolutely cucked the Democratic Party is um, in the reaction to Trump testing positive for the coronavirus. Uh, you know, the Democrats uh, are basically handing him a huge gift because I think we've seen now that you know after Boris Johnson got the coronavirus and almost died, um, and Bolsonaro got the cor- coronavirus and was hospitalized and all that stuff, like. In both cases, there was a wave of sympathy for them um, that increased their standing in the polls, their popularity, um, even though they were like struggling big time before that, you know, and they're handling with the rise. Like once they got it, it, it you know, people felt bad for them and and started and, and, and increased their popularity. So um, instead of focusing on the fact that Trump's response to the virus has contributed to the death of hundreds of thousands of people, they're actually contributing to this wave of sympathy. I mean, this this tweet by uh, Rachel Maddow, I think, was the just, I mean, it just described the Democratic response perfectly. Um, it's, it's uh, it, she, she goes, God bless the president and the first lady. If you pray, please pray for their speedy, uh, speedy and complete recovery and for everyone infected everywhere. This virus is horrific and merciless, and no one, sh- and no one should wish its wrath on anyone. We must get it spread under control enough. And like, notice how Maddow just completely removes Trump's agency there in his own response to the virus. It's just this horrible, menacing thing that, you know, what are you going to do, even though like other governments have shown that if you do kind of the right policies, you can drastically minimize and mitigate its effects on the population. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned in her segment, Joe Biden is uh, is pulling all his negative ads. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying like Joe Biden should tweet out like the Ghanaian funeral meme, um, which I think we should look at right now because it's the best meme ever made. Uh, Kale, can you fire it up? I don't, have to, I don't wear masks like him. Every time you see him, he's got a mask. He could be speaking 200 feet away from it. He shows up with the biggest mask I've ever seen. This is their new hoax. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. It, it, it gets me every single time. It gets me every single time. But, you know, I... I, I, I Ilan Omar, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, is like is the only, I feel like is the only person who, who's like speaking any sense right now. She's like begging her fellow Democrats to not be so damn cucked all the time. You know, like she tweeted, um, uh, why would Biden delay or suspend his campaign when we know Trump would have had ads up by noon today, ridiculing Biden for testing positive, get it together. 
And if you look at her full statement, I think it hit the exact perfect note. I mean, again, Ilhan Omar's father uh, died as a result of the coronavirus. She goes, as someone who lost my own father to this virus and seen the pain it causes, I do not wish it on anyone. Over 200,000 people have now died while this administration actively ignores public health guidance and suppresses science. For months, we have been hoping for a simple acknowledgement from the president to hear the words. We will get through this together. And now we only hear those words when it's about him, not the hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their lives and the millions whose families have been touched by it because of this malfeasance. And again, she she's she's hanging this around his neck, which is exactly what an opposition party should do. And I don't know, like this thing is just, it's just driving me crazy. Like the, 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 the giant gift to Trump, like this, this incredible unforced error. Like, I don't know, like what, what your reaction is to it. Um, well, I'll just briefly start. I think there's two things. Uh, first, it's also, there, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. If you call someone the most, president of all time for four years and then all of a sudden you know are praying for his recovery so i think again people in general and americans in particular don't like losers uh and it's kind of like you said a cucked loser move so that's one and then two (laughs) uh i think this this represents a a big problem um, that's been going in american liberalism since at least the 1940s um, when, like Nando said at the, I, at the beginning, before I got on, that that I do think liberals won in a real way from in the 40s and the 50s, uh, and then they turned questions of politics into essentially technical questions, where they said we know what the answers are, how to construct a good society. Now the only issue is what are the technical adjustments we can make uh, to ensure that this society exists, and that's still reflected in sort of the explainer journalism of Vox, the sort of vibe of. Sl- late, right? Like these are technical problems. They're not like political questions of existential who gets what, when. And what I mean by that is that Democrats um, are unable to recognize their enemies as such. Uh, And this is something that I think is represented in in what Maddow was saying uh, right there is that if Trump is your political enemy, you know, maybe you don't wish death upon him, but you're not necessarily saying we pray for his great recovery. I mean, certainly the the refugees and detained assembly and uh, Gestapo-esque um, holding cells would disagree. And if you take that seriously morally, then you don't, you know, pray for someone who, who let that happen. And so I think, uh, or sorry, one more thing, you take the Merrick Garland case, right, where by all you know, normal political procedures. Obama should have had a Supreme Court justice, but Mitch McConnell, who recognizes the Democrats as his enemies, prevented that. But as long as the Democrats don't recognize the GOP as their enemies, they'll not only continue to lose, for example, they've lost the Supreme Court, but they're also not going to get support for an American public who doesn't want to vote for a party that doesn't understand what power in politics actually is. Politics is not about technical adjustments. It's about gaining and then wielding power in order to help your side get the resources that your side needs and wants. And I would say most Americans need resources right now. So most (laughs) Americans should be voting for Democrats. So it just on a variety of levels displays a lot of fundamental problems with how the Democrats fundamentally understand or misunderstand what politics actually is. 
Yeah, I I love the way you broke that down, Daniel, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the Democratic Party, not just in this instance with Donald Trump's COVID diagnosis, but with so many other instances, have uh, used this weird self-imposed double standard that puts them at a disadvantage. And I love that you brought up the, the Supreme Court because... What was the only argument that we heard from Democrats once uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and Amy Coney Barrett was announced as Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick? Oh, they're they're being hypocrites. Doesn't everyone care about decorum? Doesn't everybody care about civility? Look at that. They're being hypocrites. They're going to be punished for that, right? No, voters aren't stupid. Voters understand power. Voters certainly understand power. And so to see the Democratic Party and to like Rachel Maddow's tweet actually infuriates me because it's the equivalent of saying, let us pray for the moron who's now suffering from a serious concussion because he was banging his head against the wall. No, dude, he's an adult. You want to hang, you want to bang your head against the wall. I'm not praying for you. Wake up. Right. And, and that, by the way, it's even further than that because that head banging has harmed countless Americans and killed 200,000 Americans. Uh, so please spare me the nonsense, like judgmental tut tut. Uh, don't, don't wish bad things upon people. And I, I think that there is a distinction. I mean, I'm not going to post anything about like, Oh, I hope the president dies, but I'm not hoping and praying for anything when it comes to Donald yeah. Trump, other than he'll get elected out of office and we can have a little bit of um, so we can actually fight for policies that we care about. And you know which, what, you know, yeah, uh, go ahead. And you know what it reminds me of? It's something you often hear in foreign policy discourse about the nice guy. It's like, oh, Elliot Abrams is a nice guy. You know, right. like we shouldn't, we shouldn't go after him. It's because it's the same class, right? This is where you see how this elite class that all went to, you know, Harvard or whatever, or, or, you know, Rhodes Scholars, not in the Amy, Amy Barrett sense, but actual Rhodes Scholars, they all know each other, right? But they there is all... the same reaction to Amy Barrett, right? Exactly. You saw people like there's an op-ed in the Washington Post, like I was her colleague for years. She was very nice to me in the in the break room or whatever, you know, it's like, what that doesn't matter at all. At all. Yeah. It's because for these people who are comfortable, politics is not about an existential struggle for preservation. Right. So it's ultimately not that important to them. Uh, and that's a big problem, you know, with the Democratic Party turning away from its working class base over the last 70 years. This and, the, you know, the, Nancy Pelosi, I think, again, this week reiterated the thing that she always says about Republicans. Like, we, we need a we need a good and strong Republican Party. Like, we need that. And it's like, you first of all, like in the, the time period in which Nancy Pelosi came to power in the United States, like the Republican Party was utterly ascendant, you know, like it was just they were just constantly owning the Democrats left and right, you know, and um, and, and just this this desire to just get owned by the Republicans all the time. Like it's impossible. It's literally impossible to imagine a Republican saying something similar about the Democratic Party, like saying something like, oh, the Democrats, like they've gone too, they've gone too crazy. They've gone too far left. Like we need that old Democratic Party that I used to know and love, you know, the Bill Clinton Democratic Party or whatever. It's like, they hated those guys too. They understood that they needed to destroy that guy, even though he was passing all kinds of Republican policies, you know? Uh, so like this idea, is yeah, just, no. it's, yeah. I have to read the tweet. I have to, because read it, read it. Uh, it's just so, dis- it. like, I, ah, she tweets, um, 
Well, she didn't tweet it. So she was on Morning Joe. She made these statements on Morning Joe and Casey Hunt tweeted her statement saying, uh, the country needs a strong Republican party. This is the speaker, the Democratic speaker of the House. Most powerful Democrat in America. Yeah. The country needs a strong Republican party. It's done so much for our country. It's been hijacked by, uh, it's been hijacked and is now a cult. Yeah. What? It's I mean, crazy. look, the Republican Party is particularly awful under Trump. But to make this case that this country need, needs a strong Republican Party, which, by the way, it's got it, it has that. But what does that mean? The party of George Reagan. W. Bush and Dick Cheney? Exactly. Yeah, the party of Reagan. <laughs> yeah, the party of Reagan. Like, I guess like the amnesia is, is strong with that one. Like, I just don't I don't really get it. It's also just like Republicans understand this such so much more deeply that like the democratic party like for for all this like talk of polarization and polarization is true but it's not because the democratic party has moved left in recent years it's just that everyone has kind of sorted themselves on the different teams but the democratic party has moved right in in the last several decades and still you see republicans describe the democratic party as like radical lefties like this is all the time like ted cruz like tweets it out all the time trump said accused biden in the debate of just being a radical leftist putting biden on the defensive saying like no i actually hate the green new deal (laughs) and things like that you know like they understand that you like you cannot you cannot grant them anything that it is a zero-sum game for power and that you can you can you have to like make them out to be the most awful evil people in the world you know, like all the time. And like the Democrats for all the talk of like, you know, comparing Trump, like you said, the cognitive dissonance of c- comparing Trump. Like, well, it's the Nazi Cheeto in the White House. You know, like they don't they don't actually see it that way. They don't actually see it in the same terms as the Republican, the all out assault all the time, like no quarter given, no quarter granted. It, it's just it drives me crazy. Yeah, and I think that that's a real big problem because when you call someone a Nazi for four years and then pray for his recovery, I mean that that sort of tension is very obvious to anyone who's even paying yeah. half half of attention. And I think that Pelosi quote in, in particular reflects two things. One, again, she's a real estate zillionaire, so it doesn't matter what happens. You know, her and her grandchildren are fine forever. Uh, and and then two, it also represents this sort of like. Cold War era faith in American institutions. And I think if one were to break down the big difference between people over and under 40, uh, I think it's people around our age just don't have faith in those institutions because they've repeatedly failed us throughout our entire lives. Whereas people, what is Pelosi, 80, 79, 80, something along those lines, I mean, just have a totally different understanding and experience of of what America actually is. Um, And I think that is a big divide in the Democratic Party, which is why it's problematic that all the Democratic leaders are above 70. I mean, that's a real, except Schumer, who's 69, you know, a, a spry 69. And so I, I will think not, that- I will not take this kind of criticism of Bernie Sanders. No, no, Bernie's different. Bernie's an outlier, right? Like he was literally the yeah. only person for 40 years arguing in favor of socialism, but there was a reason that it was Bernie and not someone who was 50. You know, like he was such a strange outlier in the Democratic Party. Um, but if you look at sort of this gerontocratic power structure you have, it's, it's pretty, you know, messed up that they're making climate change policy and they're going to be dead in 10 years. <laughs> I mean, that's a real thing. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi probably yeah. won't be alive in 10 years. That's a really actually politically problematic thing to think about. Yeah. Oh, I know. And I think about it for sure. 
all right. Well, uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. That was an awesome conversation. Um, I want to have you back on regularly because I love the way you dissect historical events. And I think people need historical context to understand what's happening today. Um, everyone check out Daniel Bessner on uh, social media, uh, anywhere else people can find your work. No, just social media. <laughs> Read, get, nice. Buy his book, Democracy. Yeah, in buy Exile. my book, Democracy in Exile. Buy, buy my book. <laughs> about Love the, it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, about yeah, defensive Thanks, guys. Yeah. Really appreciate having, uh, having Thank me you. on. I'll come back whenever. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Uh, so we have a little bit of time left. So, yeah. Kale, why don't you join us and maybe we can discuss, encourage everybody's people to send us some segment. super chats. Yeah. It's everybody's favorite segment, Kale popping in. A kale segment. Um, well, so as Anna just said, kale, spending kale your salad. kale salad to finish. Just a little bit of greens to end the show. Um, <laughs> Love it. I've spent my entire life. I should just, this is the rant part of the show. I've spent my entire life dealing <laughs> with the fact that people will make like uh, salad jokes. Make uh, <laughs> it's, it's really unfair. And I entirely blame my parents. Um, yeah, I, this I actually is, this really is love the name. Segment. It is a cool name, but it's it's like a it's like the boy named Sue. You know, you had to get tough or die. You know, uh, the Johnny Cash song. So um, the, the worst, the go. absolute worst thing, and this is um, I'm exaggerating. Just so everyone's clear, this is an exaggeration. It's not literally the worst thing, but the worst thing is when I'm at like a coffee place and I'm ordering a coffee and they ask for my name and I have to tell them kale and they put down a K and there's part of me that wants to say, uh, no, actually it's with a C, but then I just feel like such a narcissistic piece of shit to be like, yeah. Uh, please write my name right on this coffee. I, but then the I other have a similar is- problem with Vila. Everyone mm. says double L, Villa, like Pancho Villa, you know, because yeah, it's a much yeah, more yeah. common name mm. um, than Vila. Vila is not that common. And so it's just the struggle, like my whole life. Vila versus Vila. Yeah. I, this I is the honest, class I, struggle. I didn't, so. I, I didn't even know till recently that your last name has one L, not two. I didn't say it, but like I noticed some interaction. Uh, I think it might have actually been between you and Kale. Where you like corrected him because you have to, like, you know, he's producing the show. And I was like, oh, damn, I didn't know that. Like, I've known, I've known you for how many years now? Since like 2016. Um, but yeah. I take, the I like your last for name. All of Jacobin. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Nana, maybe you should have been more explicit when we all first met and, and just said we should have had name tags, just like big V I L A all over yeah. it. Nando's so like, like the like nicest Bob guy Vila. ever. I yeah. Nice Once guy. you said that, Nan, you are, you are, you really are. Once you said it's bo- like Bob Vila, I, I got it. Like it's now yeah. drilled into my head. I'll never, I'll never mix it up again. Um, but I realized you were a nice guy, Nando, when you and I did a segment together on TYT, I won't give details. Okay. Um, because the person we did the segment on is apparently very sensitive. And mm. uh, we were clowning on this person uh, because he deserves to be clowned on. He reaches out to Nando about that segment. I don't know what he said to you exactly, but Nando was like, he was really like concerned. He's like, what should I tell him? You know, his feelings are hurt. And I just started laughing. I'm like, ignore him, laugh at him, tell him to kick rocks. What do you mean? Who cares? Like, I don't know. I was like, oh, Nando's so nice. He really cares. I'm as cut as the Democrats at the end of the day. No, you're not. You're not. 
Yeah. On a personal level, though, on a personal level, you're a nice guy, even when it comes to uh, people that I like to dunk on, at least. Well, you know what they say about nice guys, Nando. Yeah. The Green Day, <laughs> Green Day taught me that. They finished last. Uh, <laughs> Kale, we got to do a segment on famous Kales. There's a J.J. Kale, the guitar player. Right. What other famous Kales? Well, John Kale. That's John Kale. Um, you're not. Yeah, no. John Kale's who I was named after, but I don't know him. Mm. Um, still working on that one. If anyone in the audience can hook me up, that'd be great. Um, mm. Still waiting on super. Uh, oh yeah, there's a there's a NASCAR uh, driver named Kale. Um, don't know mm. him either. Um, most Kales know each other, but there's a couple that slip out of our, our group chat. Um, but, uh, yeah, people are just writing different Kales in the chat. We want questions, people. We want to yeah, answer your questions. questions. Yeah, I'll answer any question. Um, something that you guys were saying about, the, <laughs> about your shoes. Collection. What do you think about Kamala's shoes? Well, we actually, uh, Waz and I did a whole segment on Woke Bros where Waz explained to me that Kamala's Tims actually were like clown Tims. Like they weren't the real, they weren't the real shit. You know, I, I, had, I can't, he's like, but just, he you can just spot it from looking at him that they were like the, they were like the shitty Tims. They weren't like the real Tims. And so he was like laughing about it. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of funny. It's like the you know? off-brand Tims, like the generic no, Tims. Like, like, what is- no, they're Tims, but they're, there's like a certain model of Tims that are like the tims you know and they're more mm. expensive and she had like the cheapo mm. version of tims that weren't you know that aren't like the ones that you want like they're not the ones that you know yeah look i know that it, obviously she got positive coverage over what she was wearing um but i actually hate comments on like i don't like being like i don't like when people like out loud mention anything I'm wearing. Like, I feel like I'm being put on the spot. I like, Mm. I don't dress. Honestly, I don't dress to impress other people. Like I wear stuff that makes me feel good and makes me feel confident so I can do my job. Well, I don't want that to be part of my identity. Now, like if someone like comes and tells me quietly, like, Hey, I like your dress. Like, that's fine. I hate like the public spectacle of like, what Mm. are you wearing? And like, it's, I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable. Who are you wearing? Oh, I hate all of that stuff. And also, I mean, people should be buying secondhand clothes. I'm just keeping it real. Like there are so many awesome platforms, um, apps and stuff where people sell clothing that like they just don't want anymore. And it's nice stuff. Like I started using Poshmart, uh, Poshmark uh, to buy some stuff and it's great. It's great. It's more sustainable and it's less wasteful do that. Who cares? Like, why do you need to have like designer clothing to impress who you're trying to impress other people? It's just stupid. I just, I hate that superficial stuff. I bought those shoes from previously owned by women. You know, there's, I bought them secondhand. (laughs) (laughs) But don't you know that the spectacle is politics now, Anna? So by, by wearing the designer clothes, you're doing politics. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Every once in a while, people who watch uh, TYT's live stream will, they're like, oh, do a makeup tutorial. And like, I get Mm. tempted to do it, but then I'm like, I don't, but that's not, it's not what I do. It feels weird to do a makeup tutorial. Um, Like, let's, let's stay focused, people. Just for the, just 
a little insight into to the mind of Jacobin Magazine video, we have been considering doing some makeup tutorials. I'm not going to say with whom or how, but <laughs> just keep I your eyes peeled for that one. For this show. I wear makeup for the show, you people, and I learned how to do it. Uh, so I could do a makeup tutorial, no problem. I'll, I'll do it. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I have. So yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Um, uh, okay, a couple things, a couple questions. Uh, let's see. Um, any comments on Trump's doctor's comments from this morning? I actually mm. didn't see them. What did he say? Mm. Mm. What did he say? Okay, so actually I saw it before we went live today. And yeah, I have, I have a lot of thoughts. So uh, for those of you who maybe didn't catch it, uh, Trump's doctor uh, made a statement and it led to a lot more questions and concerns because we were all under the impression that Donald Trump and his wife Melania found out they tested positive for coronavirus around 1 a.m. Friday morning. Well, today, this morning, Saturday morning, uh, his doctor told the press that um, it had been 72 hours since uh, that positive test, uh, mm. you know, came about. And uh, that's a bit of an issue because Wednesday was when the debate happened. Donald Trump was on that debate stage uh, with Joe Biden. Uh, he was also on that debate stage mocking Joe Biden for wearing a mask uh, when he's out in public. He's such a terrible person. And now we're hearing about he's just such an awful, awful person. Like politics aside, right? Politics completely aside, just focus on him as a human being. Donald Trump is a disgusting, sociopathic, narcissistic piece of crap because he doesn't care about anyone other than himself. He's like exposing everyone close to him to this virus that could kill them. Chris Christie just notified everyone that he tested positive for coronavirus. He was gallivanting around town with Donald Trump. Now, look, like I'm not I don't I don't love these people. And I, I get the urge to be like, so what? Who cares? These are all awful people. But my point is he doesn't Trump doesn't care about the people who work close with him. He doesn't care about his base. You think he cares about the safety of his base? Like he keeps having all of these like giant events with unmasked supporters in close quarters. It's like, I don't know. I, he keeps having these super spreader events. He knew, he knew, he knew he had COVID probably when he was up on that de debate stage based on what his own doctor told the press today. Right. I take some pleasure in Chris Christie because uh, Chris Christie, like, you know, his whole shtick has always been that he's like the tough guy, straight talking, tough guy who like tells the teachers unions really what's on his mind. And, and that was like his whole... <laughs> thing as governor of new jersey and when in reality he's just like he's just as cucked as anyone like he's just the most cucked guy of all time you know like where trump completely like owned him in the republican primary and then there was like that story that i shared with you guys before the show about trump making him go fetch his mcdonald's orders which is by the way fillet of fish which is again trump is the worst thing possible or anything like he can't even order the right mcdonald's but he makes chris christie go get it for him. chris christie's campaign is supposed to like is is forced to deny the story which like again just it just makes you like even more cucked and now he is he was the dump donald trump's debate prep guy and probably got covid as a result of that so um yeah yeah well also with the just kind of this liberal outcry of like oh we're so so sorry for the president we hope he gets well i i mean my my interpretation of a lot of this is that it's like this 
like 12D chess that the liberals mm. have always been playing because like it's mostly more affluent, more middle-class people that are just by nature already extremely anxious about everything in the world, but especially about this existential threat in the White House, or at least in their minds. Um, and, and the way that they've been, like, they've been worried, I think, that Trump could come out of this seeming like a victim, that he'll actually do well because he, whether, and some of them are not really sure if he actually is sick or not, that there was like a whole other thing I remember seeing online the other day where it's like, is Trump actually sick or is this a, just a way to get sympathy? I mean, I think the whole thing's bogus, like, because there's no, this is not good for Trump. Like, this is not going to, like, boost him in the polls. This is not going to be, like, this is a complete, like, annihilation of his, like, uh, I don't know, his, his ego and his, like, um, his posturing on this, on the pandemic. That, uh, like, the strong man just got sick and is going to spend the next two weeks in the hospital. And, yes, there's a humanity in that, of course, but, like, that's by noticing that doesn't mean that he's going to all of a sudden like skyrocket in the polls. It means that his politics have failed. And yeah. And, the- and you need an opposition party to highlight that effectively. Right. And right. they're not doing that. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. And as you were mentioning, you know, the fall of this whole like strongman uh, persona, all I could think of was Jesse Lee Peterson screaming beta male, like <laughs> in the middle of his interviews. <laughs> Anyway, I, sorry, sorry I, I, for that. Like, no, ima- just imagine if Pelosi could manage to say that. Yeah, mm, it's, it's amazing. Game over. It's game over. But they won't do it. They won't do it. Uh, just the I entire. <laughs> I mean, we should be the opposition, but that's another story. That's another. Uh, but anyway, I mean, the point being is that like the uh, the Democrats are not doing themselves any favors, and if Trump loses, which I've kind of in the last couple of months gone back and forth, honestly, for like a, a solid month. I, I figured Trump is actually probably going to win. But after all of this, like, I don't think Trump wins. And I think it's entirely on him that he will self-sabotage thanks to him not wearing a mask and getting sick. Thanks to his obnoxious debate performance. Uh, thanks to the fact that like he's completely dropped all of like his economic program that was appealing to people four years mm-hmm. ago. Of course, it was like bullshit. But he can't even he can't even present that argument anymore that like he has given up every aspect that made him an appealing candidate to a chunk of voters and the democrats will have played no part in that which yeah. is like absurd it's so absurd yeah uh, yeah um someone dan in the chat says regarding her shoes kamala is a shoe in for the presidency if biden mm. wins he won't be lucid for long Nice Good one. Luck. Got him. Got it. Got him. Um, uh, let's see. Someone asked me for a book recommendation. You should ask all of us for book recommendations. Just because I'm trolling in the chat during the show about Anwar Sheikh and Marxist economics doesn't mean that I'm the only one who's reading Anwar Sheikh and Marxist economics. I'm. I don't know. Well. I don't know, you definitely I are. Well, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that right now. I have no time. Like part yeah, of my yeah. frustration lately has been I spend so much of my time producing one show every single day. And mm-hmm. it's like the daily shit. It's the daily People shit. People don't realize how difficult all, that is. 
No, it's it's did, unbearable. It's, it's not that it's difficult. It's just that it it's time consuming and takes me yeah. away from like actually being able to explore my curiosities. Like that's what yeah. drives me nuts. So right now, I, I'm not reading anything because I literally can't. I did a daily show um, at, during the World Cup in 2014 from Rio de Janeiro, and we only did 30 days of a daily show. Um, and like, I, I lost like. 20 pounds like i was like i was like disappearing it was crazy i i, I realized yeah. that like producing a daily show for years i don't know i can't even begin to um oh if i stopped so, producing a daily show i'm gaining 30 pounds like, like right. immediately this like is your, usually this is like, your diet your diet <laughs> recommendation it's like produce a daily, daily. show at 5.30 p.m. daily, I'm like, yeah. oh, I had a handful of peanut M&Ms today. Uh, I should probably yeah. eat something. Yeah, it, it's right. very time consuming. But it does suck because like when you take a step back and you look at the grand scheme of things, it's it's just not fulfilling, you know? Yeah. Like you want to feel like you're growing and you're learning through what you do. But in this Trump era, it's been so difficult because I think there you can find a balance where you're doing a daily news show, but you still have enough time um, to focus on other, you know, reading for pleasure, basically. Uh, but with Trump, it's like we'll have an entire rundown. We've spent all day producing it. It's ready to go. We're going to go live like in an hour yeah. and a half. I have an hour and a half to read whatever I want. And then news And then break. he does something. Yeah, he does something. And yeah. it's like I want to pull my hair out. So, yeah, that's yeah. where we're at. Um, yeah. Well, I'm 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 reading right now the the Ray, Reagan Land, the Rick Perlstein book. Um, it's super long, so it's going to take me a while. So I'll be reading it for a while. But I, it's it's really fun. Like it's fun if you, if you like if you enjoy politics or care about it or whatever. But it's just it's really fun. It's like the it describes basically America's like dramatic rightward turn between 1976 and 1980 in like painstaking detail. But it like all of the fights that we're seeing now, all of the culture war fights that we're seeing now, like more or less kind of started then and they have changed very, very little um, in a long time. So it's, it's interesting to see the seeds of that, you know, the sort of um, basically the right wing backlash to the new deal consensus, but someone asked in the chat, like a good first book, if you're interested in socialism, honestly, plug for plug for Jacobin founder, Bhaskar Sunkar's socialist manifesto. It's like an easy, very contemporary, you know, it's not like, he, he wrote it like two years, like last year or the year before or whatever. And mm -hmm. so it's like, it's, it's meant for an audience that's of today. It's not like, you know, written mm -hmm. in the 19th century or whatever, which you should absolutely read those books as well. But like for an intro that's easier and kind of is Bhaskar Sunkar's Socialist Manifesto, I highly recommend it. Yeah. And it's full of his trademark awful dad jokes that yes. he has no right to make these jokes, but he he won't stop. He's and like the world's as oldest an employee. Young I can't stop him. So only you can, audience. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. He's exploiting um, you for your labor, dude. Yeah. It's the well and for Marxists, it's there's exploitation and domination. I right. I don't get all of my He doms you uh, all the time. <laughs> that's right. I, I produce a great deal of surplus for for Boscar and uh, I don't get all of the fruits of my labor. But I also have to endure his jokes. So uh, <laughs> it's 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 truly tragic. Again, this is just the Jacobin class struggle that we've been talking mm. about all day. Uh, a good book that I was thinking about um, while uh, Daniel Bessner was on, which that was a fantastic interview because I love history, but I 
barely get a chance to actually dig deep into history right now, um, especially on uh, that kind of Central Asian uh, history. But um, there is a really great book um, that I'm sure some people were familiar with. This is not like an introductory Marxist book, but um, if that's the kind of thing you're looking for, go with Boscar. But um, uh, Eric Hobsbawm's Nations and Nationalisms oh. from 1780, it's all about kind of the the creation of na- nationalism and of nations, particularly it's, he's focused on Europe, um, which I think he makes a compelling argument. That's basically where this starts because it's not just mm. a, a natural phenomenon of having no. nations and therefore nationalism yeah. as the kind of the ideology of that. Um, and it's interesting because kind of fundamentally much of the creation of nationalism is done by States. It's a process of like, um, statecraft and state creation yeah yeah i mean like uh and right because you like you have this vast territory and like prior to like a you know couple hundred years ago like just two three hundred years ago you know a place like france like there's a million different little cultures and and language differentials and all these different like these people are totally spread out and so the what we now know as france was about 200 years ago basically parisian Right. That they, they it's a process of homogenizing the population. And so a lot of that happens through education. Um, but it's this this cultural training of uh, we are, um, to use Benedict Anderson's phrase, an imagined community that, uh, yeah. that we are all somehow connected in some way. Um, but the thing with it is that some of it is created by the state because the state has an interest in kind of bringing everyone under one state apparatus um, for a number of reasons. But uh, the other side of it is that there's plenty of nationalism that's kind of then spawned up that was not state-driven. Um, and this is a lot of the, the thing with um, going into World War I, the, the issues in, uh, in the Balkans um, of the uh, Hungarians having, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire having like a million little nationalities springing up all claiming uh independence and fundamentally i think what's so interesting and so important about it is it kind of what Hobsbawm does he sheds that um kind of uh to keep it kind of in the marxian world that like fetishization of like of nationalism it historicizes it yeah. and like articulates when and how it comes about um and it's important because then it becomes a political question of like, how do you deal with this, this thing that is in fact something that's created that does in fact, it does, there, there are generative mechanisms in the world that create this thing um, and like give it uh, velocity. And what's, you know, just with that, I'm teasing, but like uh, socialists in like the 20th century um, or sorry, not the 20th, sorry, the 19th century, it wasn't obvious that you support nationalism, that you support yeah. uh, that it, it's, it's a political question of because it's not necessarily working people, that it is yeah. a combination of elites and peasantry and workers. And so, um, and, you know, yeah, where that's to obscure class solidarity and class consciousness, you know, because it, it ties you to people who are, are your enemies. Right. Right. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Eric Hosbaum, right. it's a hundred, like the most worthwhile read ever. Like I read, I read age of extremes and I was, I was moving in yesterday and I was like arranging my, like my books, which I do own. Um, and I was like, I had all the, books, I, like, I really should, I really should 
finish all the other ones. Like uh, his, it's just so breathtaking how comprehensive he can be, but also accessible, and um, how he like makes a point that if that rings so much true, then he kind of unpack like argues against his own point, but ultimately comes back. I don't know. It's just, he's got like a very lucid style that I think um, everyone should read. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. We need to, we need to open Anna's schedule up a little bit so we can get her. Yeah. So So we can do the Hobbs bomb hour. (laughs) We should do it. We should do the. I gotta make, I gotta make some difficult decisions. (laughs) In my life, like to to find that balance, but yes, I agree. Um, right. So that's that's what I have to say about Eric Hobsbawm. Um, mm. We're now at the hour, but thank you, thanks all of you, thanks Daniel. I'm gonna disappear, but thanks audience. Um, I know uh, it's it. I enjoy all of our interactions every Saturday. It's always fun to to see my chat, <laughs> my my. Uh, kingdom fit for a is it, is it a well-behaved chat is it a well uh, are they well-behaved yes for the most part? very well-behaved okay good nando right. i love how you're pretending like you don't know like reading all those comments about how hot you are you know you know they're behaving you're behaving exactly the way you would like them to behave <laughs> <laughs> let's keep it real anyway uh but we love you guys thank you for watching um i hope you guys enjoyed today's show i know the topic um, in the interview section is very different from what you're likely to hear anywhere else. Um, but I'm grateful that we have an opportunity to do deep dives into those types of topics. Um, so please support Jacobin, uh, subscribe, uh, to their print publication because it's fantastic. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the ja- channel, youtube.com slash Jacobin mag. Um, and yeah, like, and share the streams, um, not just this one, but the stream for any programming that comes out of the Jacobin channel. So we want to spread this message. It's really important. Anyone watching? Just like, Absolutely. I know all of you. Okay. I was very He's nice to the chat. Now frozen. I'm coming back for the chat with a, a finger wag. You all have friends that don't watch this show currently that I'm sure you know would enjoy this show. So please send the show to your friends. Send, send yeah. your favorite episode, whether or not it's this one. Send the show. We're left, but fun. You know, we're yeah. not boring. We're cool. We're cool people. I hope we're not. Yeah. And if yeah. we are, we'll get better. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get better. Be best. All right. Uh, Thank you so much. We love you guys. We'll see you soon. Bye.